0: So when I started reading this week in Acts chapter 19, and getting ready for our time in God's Word together today, I started where we left off last time. I started in verse 8, and honestly, I didn't get very far. I got through verse 10, but my mind just kept coming back to the end of verse 8, and to the little phrase there at the end of verse 8, about the kingdom of God. Luke tells us there in Acts 19.8 that for three months, Paul entered the synagogue in the city of Ephesus and spoke boldly and reasoned and persuaded the Jewish people there about the kingdom of God. And that just struck me that Luke says that about the content of Paul's teaching and preaching there in Ephesus because probably what we would expect Luke to say if he was summarizing the content of of what Paul taught, if he was going to use one word or one phrase to get to the bottom line of what Paul was always talking about and teaching about and preaching about, we might expect that the one word that he would use would be the word gospel, right? The good news of what Jesus Christ has done to redeem people and to deliver us from sin and from death and from Everlasting condemnation. I mean, that is what Paul was always preaching about, isn't it? That Jesus is the true Messiah. That salvation only comes through faith in Him. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, right? That's his constant theme wherever he goes. That's it's right. That's exactly what Paul preached and taught and proclaimed. And yet, Luke doesn't use the word gospel here in verse 8 to define the content of Paul's preaching and teaching. He says that Paul was reasoning, dialoguing, remember that word? Reasoning and and persuading them about the kingdom. So does that mean that during these three months that Paul spent in Ephesus, he changed the content of his teaching and focused on a different subject than the gospel of Jesus Christ? It does not mean that. Here's what it means. It means that from Luke's Holy Spirit-inspired perspective, the Gospel has everything to do with the Kingdom of God, and you cannot understand the Gospel until you understand about the Kingdom of God. And so Paul spent three months explaining to Jewish people who who were familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures, which are replete with teaching about the kingdom of God, Paul spent three months teaching them about the kingdom. You know why? Because as much as they understood the Old Testament Scriptures, they misunderstood what they teach and what they reveal about the kingdom of God. And so they misunderstood the King, Jesus. And they misunderstood what He had come to do And they misunderstood the Gospel, and so Paul needed to set all of that straight. The Kingdom of God is the theological context that the Gospel must be understood within. And that's what I want for us to think about today from God's Word. It's interesting that in Luke's writings, both in the Gospel of Luke and here in the book of Acts, he wrote both of course. Luke uses the word kingdom far more than he uses the word gospel. In fact, the word gospel as a noun is never used in the gospel of Luke. And it's only used twice as a noun in the book of Acts. Now as a verb, the the word to preach the gospel is used 25 times between The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But the word kingdom is used almost four times as often. More than 90 times between Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts. And again, that doesn't mean that Luke is more interested in the kingdom than he is in the Gospel. It means that he understands that they do and must go together. He understands that the gospel, the good news about salvation through Jesus Christ, is actually all about the kingdom of God being established. And Paul knew that. And so wherever Paul was teaching and preaching about the gospel, about Jesus, what he was actually talking about was the kingdom of God. And Jesus obviously knew that, which is why the very first thing that Jesus said, after spending 40 days being tested in the wilderness, when when he came out of the wilderness and, and was baptized by John and began his public ministry, the very first thing Jesus said was, repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the theme of the kingdom was absolutely central and foundational to everything that Jesus taught during his time here on this earth. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the kingdom and try to understand why this concept is so centrally important in the Word of God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing to understand is this. In the Bible, the concept of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they they mean the same exact thing When you see those phrases, there's no distinction between them, just a different way of referring to the same reality, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same reality. In the Bible, the concept of God's kingdom has to do with God's reign, R-E-I-G-N, not what falls out of the sky. Moisture and precipitation, but God's reign, His rule, and not specifically a realm or a place. Oftentimes in our sort of parlance in the 21st century Western world, when we think of kingdom, we think of a location, we think of a territory, we think of a place. But the word in Scripture doesn't mean a place. It means a power. It doesn't mean a realm. It means a reign and a rule. The sovereign rule and and dominion of God is what's being talked about when the Bible talks about a kingdom. His dominion as God. And that sovereign rule, that dominion of God over all things, creates a realm, creates a place where His kingship is expressed, but the kingdom of God is not synonymous with a place, with a realm The sovereign, kingly authority and power of God can create a people that are His subjects, that are His own. But those people aren't synonymous with the kingdom of God. So that's the first basic thing to understand about the kingdom of God in the Bible. It's not first and foremost a place. It's not first and foremost a people. It's the sovereign power and rule and reign and dominion of the Almighty, Eternal God. And the second very basic thing to understand about the Kingdom of God in the Bible is that sometimes God's Word talks about God's dominion in a very general sense and sometimes in a more specific sense. On the one hand, in the general sense, The dominion of God is unlimited, right? The dominion of God is universal, right? Because He's God. Because He's sovereign. There's nothing in a general sense that He doesn't rule over. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. There is nothing in all of creation over which the sovereign Creator does not rule Then on the other hand, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it is very often not just talking about that universal sovereign kingship, but a special rule and reign over a particular people. And it's in that second sense of God's special and particular rule and reign that Paul is preaching about the kingdom in Acts chapter 19. He's not preaching about the general reality of the sovereignty of God over everything. In the way, for instance, that Psalm 145 is talking about. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. In Psalm 145, the psalmist is giving praise to God for his general and universal and eternal reign over all creation for all time. But there's this other sense, isn't there, in which God's Word reveals a particular kingdom, a particular rule and reign of God, a specific dominion that He works to establish in this world. For instance, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah predicted, this is Zechariah 14 and verse 9, the Lord will become king over all the earth meaning that the universally sovereign God of the universe is one day going to assert His kingly rule and authority in this world in a unique way. Isaiah also talked about that. Isaiah chapter 24 and verse 23. The day is coming, he says, Sometime in the future, when the moon will be confounded and the sun will be ashamed and the Lord of hosts will reign, future tense, on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. So when the Bible talks about God's kingdom, again, not a place but a power, not a realm but a rule, when it talks about God's sovereign dominion coming, we know that it's speaking in that more specific sense, not in the general sense of his sovereign kingship over all of creation. That's the sense in which Paul's talking in Acts 19. That's the sense in which John the Baptist was speaking when he pointed to Jesus and told people to repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is at hand. What the prophet predicted is now here. And then Jesus himself repeated those same words, didn't he, at the beginning of his public ministry. Everything that the prophets predicted in the Old Testament, a coming time when God would assert his sovereign dominion in the world in a specific and particular way, now that's come because the King is here with the coming of Jesus into the world. Listen to the words of the Dutch scholar Hermann Ritterboss, he says it like this, the idea of the coming of the kingdom of God is preeminently this. It's the idea of the kingly self-assertion of God, of His coming into the world in order to reveal and manifest all of His royal majesty and power and righteousness. When you hear about the kingdom coming in the Bible, that's what it means. God, the King, is coming to assert His royal majesty and power and righteousness in this world. So this distinction between the general and the specific, it's similar right, to the distinction between God's omnipresence, the reality that He's always present everywhere on the one hand, and the reality that we see in Scripture, on the other hand, that sometimes He manifests His presence in special and unique ways. In particular places, in particular times, like in the, in the cloud of glory that led the people through the wilderness. Or like in the temple where the manifest presence of God dwelt atop the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Both things are true, right? God is omnipresent. There is literally no place where He is not. Didn't, didn't we see that in Psalm 139? Didn't David rejoice in that? Where can I go and, and be apart from your Spirit, from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I go all the way down to Sheol, you're there. If I fly like a bird to the uttermost parts of the earth, if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. You're everywhere, Right? There literally is no place where God is not. Because He's omnipresent, and at the same time, there are special and particular ways and times in which God manifests His presence uniquely to His people. And and that's in that same way, God is the eternally and universally sovereign King over all of the universe, and also... He manifests and and asserts His authority, His dominion, His rule in this world in special, particular ways and at specific times. And the key to understanding the great beauty and majesty and importance of what God reveals about His kingdom, His sovereign reign and creation, is this. It is the purpose of God For that specific sense of His dominion being expressed and asserted in a particular way in this world to intersect with the general reality of His universal eternal kingship over all of creation so that the two become one in a particular kingdom that is an everlasting and cosmically universal dominion of God with all of His people in a new heavens and a new earth. Where all that is there is righteousness. And we will be in His presence forever. This is what God has purposed. He purposed it from eternity past. This is what He's working towards. Before He laid down the foundations of the world, God purposed this. Before He said, let there be light, God purposed this. In His eternal dominion as God, He purposed to create a place where His sovereign dominion would be manifested and asserted so that all of His divine majesty and power and righteousness would be revealed and celebrated. And then He created this world. And then He made man. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 In His image in order to represent Him to the creation. And a part of the image of God that man was created to be was God's dominion, right? He made man to represent His reign and rule over all of creation. That's what Genesis says. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and so let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God in His universal and sovereign kingship had created a people, had created a place, had created a realm for His kingdom to be expressed in. And He created man to to represent that so that it would be visible in all of creation. And then what happened? Sin. Satan tempted Adam and Adam rebelled against the sovereign God. And so this this delegated dominion that Adam was supposed to be expressing over this world was disrupted, was distorted, was diluted. And Satan then came in and began to build a counterfeit kingdom in this world to exert and to assert a counterfeit kind of dominion that the Bible calls the dominion of darkness in this world. A kingdom that would operate on lies and perversion of the truth of God's holiness and righteousness. So that all of the people of the earth who lived under the dominion of sin and darkness would be subject to death and to destruction. And that's why the world is the way that it is today. But was God's eternal purpose thwarted by that? Was God's sovereign dominion defeated? No, of course not. That's impossible. And in fact, the disruption was a part of His sovereign design in order to work out his ultimate purpose of manifesting and revealing and asserting his ultimate dominion in this world as he manifested and revealed and asserted sovereign justice in dealing with sin and also sovereign mercy. The two pillars of what it means really for God to exercise dominion, to be just and righteous and holy and also to be merciful and loving, and gracious, and kind. And so God began the work now of reestablishing His throne, of restoring His kingdom, not a place, not first and foremost a people, but His dominion, in the sense of, of asserting His sovereign rule in this world again. Again in opposition to the kingdom of darkness that Satan was building. And God began that work with a particular people, right? Who He called out from among all of the other people of the earth. In a special way, He called this people His own. He bound Himself to this people with a a promise, with a covenant oath to be their God. It started with Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to multiply your offspring. Abraham was an old man, didn't have any offspring. His wife was an old lady. She was barren, can't have kids. But God said, I'm going to multiply your offspring, and I'm going to bless your seed, so that your offspring will bring blessing to the whole world. And miraculously, Isaac was born to Abraham in his old age. And then to Isaac, Jacob was born. And from Jacob, in spite of Jacob, right? We saw this last week. From Jacob, God brought 12 sons. God had changed in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob's name to Israel after, after he wrestled with God. And so these 12 sons were the 12 sons of Israel. And they ended up living together in Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis. And then at the beginning of Exodus, we learn that they ended up being enslaved there by cruel, godless pharaohs for 400 years before God freed them through Moses and led them through the wilderness for 40 years into the promised land, into a place. The dominion of God Created a people and a place for the kingdom to be manifested and expressed as it was being built in this world. So in that season, these descendants of Abraham became the particular people, living in the particular place where God's sovereign power and kingdom reign were being manifested, were being revealed, were being asserted into this world. And through God's presence with them, the judges and the kings of Israel led the nation, the earthly nation, in justice and in victory over their enemies. God raised up David, the son of Jesse. He was a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. A picture, right? An illustration of the greater king that was to come. But God raised up David, a man after God's own heart. And David became king over Israel, doing what Adam had failed to do, representing God's sovereign rule and authority over his people. And at the same time, even though God was reestablishing a throne, Satan's counterfeit kingdom of darkness continued to grow and thrive and spread in this world, didn't it? And so all of the nations around Israel were consumed with wickedness and with idolatry and the demonic worship of false gods. And even Israel, even God's chosen people, defiled themselves over and over with that idolatry and with that wickedness in spite of God's kindness and goodness and favor upon them. Even the king's imported all of that idolatry constantly into the nation such that it was being polluted by the kingdom of darkness. And so the sovereign God, the sovereign king, continued to manifest and to reveal and to assert His dominion, His justice, by punishing the people, as well as His mercy, by not destroying them completely. Again, the pillars of His authority and dominion in the fallen world. Sovereignly judging sin as the king. Sovereignly redeeming sinners. But all throughout the Old Testament, God was revealing through the prophets that this wasn't the way it was always intended to be. A struggling kingdom of God competing with a thriving kingdom of darkness. All throughout the prophets, God revealed that that there was coming a far more ultimate manifestation of His kingdom, His dominion, His sovereign power and authority and rule over creation. There was coming a time when God's dominion would completely and utterly and totally dominate every aspect of creation. No more kingdom of darkness. No more sin, no more rebellion. Only righteousness and only peace forever. That's what God started to talk about in the Old Testament. He made a promise to David, 1 Samuel chapter 7, that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne of God's kingdom and rule and reign over God's people permanently and ultimately. And would establish them in a place where there would never again be anything to disturb them or oppress them. Because that promised king would sit on the throne of God forever and his kingdom and his dominion, it said, would never end. And then Isaiah came along and and spoke of it also. Listen to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 11. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. He paints a little picture in our minds, doesn't he? A couple of years ago now, there was a big windstorm, and one of the trees up in the upper parking lot, there's a, there's a line of them in the middle of that parking lot. They blossom beautifully in the spring. Well, the one on the far west side just blew over in that windstorm, and it was dead now. And so Kevin had to come and chop it all up and haul all the wood away. And all that was left was this s- stump. Sticking out of the dirt. And then guess what happened a few months later? little green sprig grew up out of the roots of that stump. And now another tree is starting to grow. Well, that's the picture in Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. What's the stump of Jesse? Well, Jesse was David's father, right? And in the Old Testament, the earthly Israel... The, the line of kings who came after David were, were a pretty motley crew, weren't they? They were a miserable bunch of representatives of God's sovereign justice and dominion, weren't they? They failed more often than not. There were some standout exceptions by God's mercy, but generally speaking, time and time again, especially up in the north where none of them were good, The kings of Israel failed to rule the nation in a way that even came close to manifesting God's holiness and righteousness and and authority. And so time and time again, God, the true king, manifested His justice by bringing judgment on the nation, like the Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian captivity. And so if if Israel in the Old Testament, which was ruled and reigned over by kings in David's wake, if it's pictured like a tree, then it didn't look like a very healthy tree. It didn't look like there was much life at all. There was no fruit coming off of this tree. And eventually, just withered by idolatry and sin and the judgment of God, it looked just like a dried up stump. The stump of Jesse. But God said through Isaiah that by his sovereign mercy, he would never let that tree completely die. That from the withered stump, a shoot would spring up and bear much fruit. And then the prophecy there in Isaiah 11 just goes crazy. Talking about how much fruit. God calls the shoot him, it's a person, He's talking about a a, a descendant of David. and, And this descendant would be qualitatively different from any and every other king before him. So he's talking about the promised king. The one who would reign forever. He's talking about Jesus. Listen. Isaiah 11 verse 2. Listen to what God reveals about this shoot that will grow up out of the stump of Jesse. It says the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him who is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, contrary to all of the other kings before him. Seven distinct graces of God will rest upon this shoot This King, this Messiah, this Christ, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. He will be full of divine wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All of that will will characterize and epitomize everything that he is and everything that he does in ruling in this world. And so, because of those seven divine graces that qualify and characterize him, the prophecy goes on to say that he will judge the world, the whole world, with righteousness and with power. Verses 3 through 5 of Isaiah 11 say, and he will establish his kingdom, his dominion, in absolute peace and in the fullness of the knowledge and wisdom of God. Verses 6 through 9 say, Again, manifesting, revealing, and asserting all of the fullness of God's holiness and justice and mercy and truth in this world in everlasting and in ultimate dominion. And Isaiah pictures that dominion that's going to come from this shoot this Christ in absolute terms in ultimate terms listen to how he describes the absolute peace for example that is going to characterize the dominion of the coming king who is of course Jesus Christ when he comes and establishes his kingdom the wolf shall dwell with the lamb the leopard shall lie down with the young goat you see the picture that's being painted a peace no more tearing and ripping and bloodshed. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will be able to play over the hole of the cobra. No death. The wean child shall put his hand in the adder's den. No fear. They shall not hurt, they shall not destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Beautiful picture, right? That's what's coming, Isaiah says. That's the kingdom. That's the kind of absolute dominion that the kingdom of God is going to consist of when the shoot of Jesse comes, when the promised Christ comes and asserts all of the divine, royal majesty and power and righteousness of God in this world. No more violence, no more death, no more destruction, no more pain, no more lies of Satan, no more deception, no more darkness. Only light and truth and justice and peace in ultimate and in absolute and in everlasting measure. That is what the Old Testament Scriptures are revealing and pointing to when they speak about the coming kingdom of God. That's what all of the people of the Old Covenant are wanting and longing for. This coming reign and dominion of God that will dominate everything. The Scriptures are pointing to a day when all of God's majesty and power and righteousness will assert itself over all of creation. Fully dominating every aspect with the sovereign dominion of the Almighty King of Heaven. That's what the Kingdom is. That's what Jewish people were longing for. See, in our, in our Western world, in our 21st century in America, in, in the kind of evangelical Christian, Christendom that we've all kind of grown up with, I think that we've come to think about the blessings of God primarily in a pretty individualistic way. God saving me from my sins. God giving me the grace that I need to go to heaven. God having a wonderful plan for my life. But see, what God is revealing in His Word is far more collective than that. It's not just individual. It's not just redemption for me. It is, but it's more than that. It's redemption for the whole world. The whole universe. It's not just about my personal salvation. My personal salvation is is to be seen within the greater context of this universal kingdom. It's not about me, first and foremost. It's about Him. See? See? It's about this universal expression and assertion of God's sovereign rule and dominion over everything for all time. That's the great hope that the Word of God is proclaiming. It's not first and foremost about me. It's first and foremost about Him. That's why we worship the way we worship. We're not here for us. We always wanted to put that on the sign out there kind of as a joke, tongue-in-cheek. This church is not for you. That would get a lot of people showing up, wouldn't it? (laughs) But you see what it means. We're not here for us. We're here for Him. We're not here to do what feels good to us. We're here to please Him. He says, here's what I want. Here's how I want you to worship. Here's what's important. Everything's about Him, everything's about His glory, everything's about His kingdom, His dominion, His coming into the world to assert His royal majesty and power and righteousness ultimately and universally and eternally. And so, everything that Jesus is, and everything that Jesus came in order to do, and everything that He did, and everything that He is still doing as He sits on the throne in heaven... And everything that He will do when He returns has to be understood in the context of the kingdom of God, of the dominion of God. Our salvation is a part of it. But far more significance than, than just our personal redemption is God's everlasting dominion, His kingdom, which will never end. That's why our, our favorite Old Testament Christmas passage in Isaiah chapter 9 which reveals Jesus, the coming child, reveals Him in the way that He does. Not just as a personal Savior, but primarily as an ultimate King. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And we're tempted to just stop there. Yay, look what I get for Christmas. Then it goes on. The government, the dominion, shall be upon His shoulders. And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Ultimate Peace. And of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. And... On the throne of David he shall reign, and over his kingdom he shall establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. It's all about the kingdom, right? It's all about the dominion of God over all things. And you'll notice as you listen to those verses that are so familiar in Isaiah 9, which of course they're prophesying about the Christ child who was born in Bethlehem as the mighty God came into this world in human flesh to establish sovereign dominion and uphold it with justice and righteousness forevermore. Notice that in that prophecy, God reveals that when the child is born, the government, the dominion will be on his shoulder as the mighty God who He is, and that His government, His dominion, His rule, His reign will what? Increase endlessly until it becomes ultimate. Now see, this is one of the things that the Jewish people of the Old Testament didn't get, didn't understand about the kingdom of God. There, There was a bunch that they didn't understand. This was one of the key things. They thought that when their Messiah came, it was all going to happen all at once. Bang! No more enemies for Israel. They didn't realize about the increase of His government. And they also thought about what He was going to come to do from the limited, finite, and fallen perspective Of their own earthly struggles and problems, primarily, and not in terms of their true and ultimate problem. See, they thought, and this is what Paul is spending three months teaching them about, correcting them for. They thought that their biggest problem that the king was going to come solve for them was earthly suffering, earthly hardships, earthly oppression, earthly enemies. They thought that their worst enemies were all the nations around them and that when the king came, he was going to destroy them all. They were looking for the Messiah to come and do away with the Roman Empire. They thought that when the promised Messiah came to establish the kingdom, those were the kinds of problems he was coming to solve. Those were the kinds of enemies he was coming to subdue. That was the kind of peace He was coming to establish. Earthly peace, national peace, political peace. And they thought that when He he came, He was going to do it all at once. And they thought that way, first of all, because they didn't yet have all of the fullness of God's revelation. They didn't have the New Testament Scriptures yet. And what the New Testament Scriptures do by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not just reveal more, they interpret the Old Testament scriptures in a way that was very, very different than the people of God in the Old Testament interpreted and understood them. The New Testament scriptures teach us that the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to something far greater than anything they were expecting, than anything they'd ever experienced in this world. Their understanding their interpretation of those Old Testament Scriptures and the prophecies and the promises was flawed, was compromised by their own sinfulness, by their own short-sightedness. And this tendency that they had to sort of press God's promises down into the mold of their own finite and human and and sin-stained desires and expectations... So when Jesus showed up and said, I'm the King, I'm the Messiah, and I'm here to do this, they said, well, we don't want that. We want this. And if you're not going to give us this, then we don't want you. And that's what happened, right? Instead of understanding that their greatest need was to be forgiven and washed and cleansed and delivered from their bondage to sin, in their pride, they said, no, the problem's not me, the problem's outside of me. They thought they only needed to be delivered from earthly troubles and oppression. They thought they needed peace on earth. When in reality, they needed peace with God. And they were too proud to admit it. And so when God came and said, here's what you really need to repent and believe because the kingdom is at hand, they nailed him to a cross. Because they were so offended by his understanding of the kingdom which was so radically different from their own. In Jesus' own day, the Jews thought that their Messiah was going to come and defeat the Romans when in reality He had come to defeat far more ultimate enemies, right? Satan himself and sin itself and death itself were what Jesus had in His sights. Not the Romans. Jesus came to establish His kingdom not in an earthly Country or territory, which is what they expected, where he would dwell in a temple that was made out of earthly materials, stones, rocks, and and wood, which crumble and decay. No, no, no. Jesus says, I'm not coming to build that kind of temple. Jesus came to establish his kingdom, his dominion, in the temples of human souls, which are immortal in human hearts that He would make alive, that He would abide in as living temples of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. That's what you are. Because the true kingdom of God is not a particular earthly place. It can't be confined to an earthly place because the true King is Jesus and the true kingdom of His power and dominion is wherever He is. See? Definition of the kingdom? Not a place. It's where Jesus is. It's where Jesus abides. But the Jews didn't want that. They didn't want him anywhere near the darkness of their hearts. They only wanted and hoped for and desired the things of this world. They wanted material prosperity. They wanted earthly blessings. They wanted freedom from earthly and political bondage and oppression. They wanted a physical kingdom. They would rather have a temple made out of rocks and wood than Christ abide in their hearts. And in their pride, they thought they were entitled to all of that. And they thought they were entitled to it just because they were Abraham's physical descendants. We're we're favored among all the people of the earth just because we're his children, right? Right? Because we're Jews, right? According to the flesh, right? But all along, see, they misunderstood. God meant so much more by His promises and by what He was prophesying. You guys have this myopic, skewed little view, whereas God meant something far greater than you ever understood Him to mean. And the New Testament reveals all of that. Listen to Isaiah 64.4. four four. prophet Isaiah stands up, raises his voice, and, and declares, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God like you who acts for those who wait for him. Meaning, who God is, what God does, what God reveals, what God promises, far exceeds By eternal measure, anything that anybody could ever imagine or expect, or anything that anybody has ever dared hope for. Now, listen, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul quotes that verse in Isaiah. And here's what he says this is verse 6 through 10 of 1 Corinthians. He quotes this verse in Isaiah, in order to declare to to Christians living in the city of Corinth that in Jesus Christ, God has brought a fulfillment to His promises that is far, far greater than anything they'd ever understood, imagined, expected, or hoped for. They'd limited their understanding of God's promises, and Jesus came and blew the doors off of all of that. Paul says, among the mature We impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret, hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age could understand it. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no here, here he's quoting Isaiah. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of a man has imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. These things, which no one could have ever imagined or understood or predicted without the Spirit of God. These things God has revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the very depths of God. Isn't that great? So what Paul is saying is, look, in in all of their finite, fallen, flawed understanding and wisdom, the Jewish people were looking for the wrong kind of king. They were looking for the wrong kind of kingdom. And so when Jesus came and fulfilled all of the prophecies and promises of God and revealed all of the secret hidden wisdom of God... He didn't understand, and that's why they crucified him. Because they wanted something else. And they understood him according to their own wisdom and not according to the Spirit of God. So they didn't want what he offered. They didn't want him. They wanted an earthly king to give them earthly blessings and earthly prosperity in an earthly territory while dwelling in an earthly building made out of rocks. Rocks. And they wanted it right now. And if you're not going to give it to us right now, then we're done with you. And they nailed Him to a cross. Jesus came and said, You know what? My kingdom is not of this world. My dominion is not defined by earthly measure. His dominion, His sovereign rule and reign over human hearts as He subdues sin and gives new life and abides as as holy temples of the Lord within us, manifesting and revealing and asserting His majesty and power and righteousness in our lives, that kingdom is the one Jesus came to build. And as He does that in more and more living temples as He redeems more and more lives and abides in more and more temples, the glory and the dominion of God is is increasing to spread across the earth as the waters cover the sea more and more and more. In Matthew 13, Jesus said, you know what, the the kingdom is like a mystery. It's like it it needs to be understood according to the, the teaching of God. You've misunderstood it. He said it's like a mustard seed. The tiniest of seeds, which would grow into the mightiest of trees, right? The increase of his government, his dominion, his kingdom will know no end. Jesus called that the mystery of the kingdom. The true nature of the kingdom can't be, it's a mystery, it can't be discovered by human reasoning. By earthly wisdom, by human speculation, it's got to be revealed and the New Testament reveals it. It's a divine mystery that Jesus himself, the king himself, reveals. It's not established by earthly human power or force, is it, the kingdom? The kingdom of Jesus isn't established like any other kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is established by the birth of a baby and by the death of the God-man on a cross. This king rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey Not in a display of of worldly force, worldly power, but in a display of divine humility. And he rode in on the day of Passover when they were selecting the, the lambs to be offered at the temple and declared himself to be the Lamb of God, who by his sacrifice would take away the sin of the world and defeat the dominion of sin in the world. Not the Romans, not any other national power. Sin, the devil, death itself, he came to defeat. And that kingdom dominion of Jesus will grow over time like a mustard seed, such that the kingdom is at the same time at hand now. And it is a kingdom that is coming, right? We sing that this morning in the Lord's Prayer Thy kingdom come. Because the seed isn't done growing yet. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus said to the Pharisees, they were the ones who were expecting the kingdom of God to appear in earthly ways and accomplish earthly political kinds of triumphs. And 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 they thought it would be highlighted by by big visible things that they could see and observe, like the destruction of Rome. Rome. And Jesus said, no, guys, the kingdom is not coming with things that can be observed with the eye. No one's, he says, no one's going to say, look, there it is. For behold, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you already. You see? You get it? The kingdom of God's dominion won't be physically visible through things that you see on the news. Or any other observable phenomena like that, like like Rome being overturned or national Israel being established. Jesus said, No, the kingdom of God won't be detected like that. It's in the midst of you. And what he meant is, Because I am in the midst of you. God's kingdom and dominion can't be contained by earthly stuff. It's just wherever Jesus is. And listen, let me step on a toe or two. What the New Testament reveals is this also. God's kingdom has absolutely got nothing to do with any earthly nation. Because Jesus is building and growing and establishing a better kind of nation. you peter says to christians from all around the world in 1 peter chapter 2 and verse 9 whether you're jewish whether you're gentile greek african who cares if you're in christ and if christ is in you you are god's chosen race god's royal priesthood god's holy nation peter says a people for his own possession The earthly nation of the Old Testament was always just a divinely drawn picture and illustration of the real ultimate nation that God was promising to build and reign over in sovereign dominion. And belonging to that true nation of God's people has nothing to do with physical lineage, the New Testament reveals, right? It's got nothing to do, the New Testament says, with actually with being Abraham's physical descendants or offspring. That's what the Jews thought. But the entire New Testament declares that they're wrong. When God made a promise to Abraham to bless his seed, his offspring, what did God mean? How did God, who made the promise, intend to fulfill it? The, the way that the Jews thought in the Old Testament according to their finite and, and fallen understanding and expectation and interpretation or the way that God Himself declares in the New Testament by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit where He says in Romans 9, verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel physically are Israel. What's that mean? These are God's words. It means that all of the promises that God made to what He called Israel in the Old Testament were intended all along by Him to be fulfilled to a people called Israel who aren't all physically descended from Israel, from Jacob, from Abraham. Because God's kingdom is not about flesh and blood. It's not of this world. And when he made these promises to Abraham to make of his offspring a mighty nation, he never meant what the Old Testament Jewish people misunderstood him to mean. He didn't mean an earthly kind of nation, a physical, genealogical nation with physical earthly borders. That was just a picture. Like the the sacrifices of the animals were just a picture of the better one. The Old Testament priests were just a picture of the better one. The Old Testament temple, picture of the better one. The Old Testament Israel, picture of the better one. Old Testament nation, picture of the better one. The true offspring of Abraham, the true Israel, the true kingdom of God. Not all who are physically descended from the earthly Israel are the true Israel. And not all, Romans 9, 7, not all are children of Abraham just because they are his physical offspring. Paul says you... You've misunderstood and I need to help you now Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I need you to understand what God really meant back then. The New Testament interprets the old. So according to God Himself, when God promised to bless Abraham's offspring and to bring blessings to the world through Abraham's offspring, He didn't mean just Abraham's physical genetic offspring ultimately. So what did He mean? Well, the New Testament tells us who, according to God, were the objects of the blessing that God originally meant when He promised to bless Abraham's offspring. He tells us, Galatians 3, verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Notice, Paul says, it does not say offsprings, plural, referring to many, But the original promise that God made referred to one, your offspring, singular, who is Christ. The ultimate object of God's promised blessing, the ultimate offspring of Abraham, the ultimate and most true Israel is Jesus according to Galatians 3.16. Then at the end of that same chapter, and under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, Paul goes on and says this, as many as you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and whether you're Jewish or Greek, doesn't matter, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter, you're all one in Christ. Earthly genealogy and bloodlines and nationalities got nothing to do with it. You're one in Christ if you're in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. This is Paul's... I'm not interpreting. According to God, the offspring of Abraham are those who are in Christ. It's not whether you have Abraham's blood in your veins, it's whether you have Christ in you. Then you are heirs according to the promise, he says. So, according to the New Testament, the true and ultimate offspring of Abraham, the true and ultimate Israel is Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.16. And all of those, regardless of ethnicity or gender or social status, who are baptized into Christ are, by God's own definition, the actual heirs and beneficiaries of God's promises to Abraham, the actual offspring of Abraham, the actual Israel of God the actual kingdom of God, which is not of this world, because the kingdom is in our midst and the kingdom is wherever the king is and the king is in us. He abides in us who are baptized into him. And in that way, in that mysterious way that nobody could have ever seen or predicted or or thought up without the Spirit of God revealing it, in that way the kingdom of God is here now, present In the redeemed lives of people from every earthly nation who are the true offspring of Abraham, the true Israel of God, the true chosen race and royal priesthood and holy nation. And at the same time, we continue to pray as Jesus taught to, as we sang earlier, we continue to say, Thy kingdom come. Because even though the kingdom of God is in our midst now, It's not at its fullest culmination. There are still living temples to be filled out there. Souls to be saved. Lives to be abided in by the living Christ. As he causes his dominion to spread. And to grow. It's not yet at its fullest culmination. And it won't be until that day when he returns from his throne in heaven. And gathers all of his own to himself and pours out final judgment on the whole universe again as Peter says. Vanquishing every enemy. Destroying all unrighteousness and everything that was cursed by sin in this present universe. And creating a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no enemies. Where there will be no darkness. Where there will be no sin or unrighteousness or death. Only life. Only righteousness, only light, only peace. Only the fullness of God's dominion and kingdom forever. In Jesus' day, when He came and presented Himself as the King of kings, who He is, and when He called people to repent and believe, because the the kingdom was at hand and in their midst, because the kingdom is wherever the king is, wherever Jesus is, when He did all that, they they didn't want Him. They didn't want Him. They didn't want Him to be King of their hearts and Lord of their lives. They only wanted things, things that they wanted, earthly, worldly, fleshly things, and they wanted it from Him. It was all about them. Don't, Don't tell me it's all about you and your glory. You're here to give me what I want. Because they were consumed with themselves. They were consumed with their pride. They didn't want to turn from their sin. They didn't want to be under the sovereign rule of His everlasting dominion. They wanted Him to give them what they wanted. They wanted it on their terms and they wanted it right now immediately when they wanted it. And so, when He taught them what the kingdom of God is really all about, they crucified the King and the Lord of glory. Ultimately because they preferred the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the blessed son. They preferred the things of this present age to the things of the age that is to come. And when Paul reasoned with the Jews in Ephesus about the kingdom, he was met by some of them at least with that same kind of response, right? They were stubborn They continued, they persisted in their unbelief. They refused to accept the kingdom, the sovereign authority and dominion and rule and power of Jesus because He wasn't giving them what they wanted on their terms when they wanted it. So listen, we're going to close right here. Simply with this, don't be like those unbelieving Jews who stubbornly refused to accept Jesus' kingship and lordship unless He gave them what they wanted in this world. Those people allowed their own myopic and prideful and fleshly desires And earthbound, under the sun, hopes and expectations to actually define the kind of Messiah and King and Kingdom that they would be willing to accept. Don't do that. And say to the Lord of glory, I don't want you unless you give me what I want. Unless you bless me right now with what I feel entitled to. The reality is it it doesn't matter, ultimately, what we want from Jesus, what we want from God in this world. All that matters is eternity. It doesn't matter what He gives us, what we suffer, what we experience. All that matters is eternity. We're here for a blink of an eye. We're here for a blip. We're here for a moment. We're here for less than a heartbeat. All that matters is eternity. And in eternity, all that matters is His glory. His power, His dominion, His authority. I mean, didn't he, didn't he say not to worry about the things of this world? About food, about money, about clothing, about success, about prosperity in this world? That's what, that's what unbelievers worry about, Jesus said. What I want you to do is seek first the kingdom and righteousness of God. And His kingdom is not a place. His kingdom is not a people. It's a power. It's not a realm. It's a reign. It's His sovereign rule. His lordship. His dominion. Beginning in our lives. Seek that dominion. Means submit yourself to the King. Define yourself as His subject. My life is not my own. I'm not here for me. I'm here to glorify you. And serve you. Go wherever you would send me, follow wherever you would lead me, do whatever you would have me do, if it glorifies you, whatever the cost. And part of that cost is being willing to go and spread that kingdom, that dominion, through the power of the gospel to more and more lives through more and more of this world until that day when he returns and makes all things new. When the last trumpet blows, Revelation 11:15, that's when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ who shall reign forever and ever. Live for that Christians live for him live for His kingdom, live for His everlasting dominion and power and glory. Nothing else and no one else matters. Amen.